Amen. If you have elementary age kids, uh, we would love them to be part of our Vine Kids time. Uh, they can go right out this door here, out that side door. We, if you have a middle school age kiddo as well, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th in that window, uh, we meet right back here in the back, in the new back 40 there. Mr. Greg uh, teaches that group of middle school students, so we'd love for you to be a part of, uh, of that time as well. So after all this kind of break, we took this break from about November all the way until now, uh, we are back in the Gospel of John. For those of you that have been coming anywhere from about November to last week, then this is all brand new for you. But for those of you that have been coming for a while, we have been on this journey for almost, well, over two years now, two years and a couple of weeks, actually. I went back and looked February 5th of 2017. We started this journey through the Gospel of John, a desire to go week by week, verse by verse, exploring John's Gospel. So for those of you that are here for the kind of first time, or last week was your first time, and Brandon caught us back up a little bit, then a little bit of this is new for you. But for those of you that have not been, then this is kind of a welcomed return, and and we are on the the very home stretch here. Um, So we have spent all of this time looking at John's Gospel, which is a wholly different Gospel, by the way. And as I've said every week that we've kind of looked at this over the years, that John's gospel is not like the other gospels. His entire goal is not to give us the historical account of the life of Jesus. John instead is making a theological argument for the incarnation. John wants us to know that Jesus was in fact God. That is the entire point of his gospel. Every story, every miracle, every breath, every word that he writes is to point us to the fact that Jesus is God. So for John's gospel, the culmination of everything that he is writing is wrapped up in these last two chapters. Because if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then everything that we believe and have put our hope and our faith in, and John's entire gospel, is completely useless and in vain. Brandon mentioned this last week. Paul mentions it in 1 Corinthians. He says that if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then everything that we have based our entire life on is a lie and that we should be pitied more than all people. Because everything hinges on this single event that changed the history of humanity. That Jesus is in fact alive, that he has mastery over sin and death, that he has been raised from the dead, that he has conquered death. And John's gospel culminates into this. If you remember how we got here, right, Jesus has been betrayed and handed over by those that he trusts and he loves. He has been put on a sham of a trial. Pontius Pilate has tried and tried to free him multiple times. Pilate can find nothing wrong with Jesus, but the crowd that's gathered there for the Passover, uh, it wants Jesus dead. That crowd that is moved by the, the Pharisees and those that have been threatened by Jesus' words and his way of life are calling for the crucifixion of Jesus and Pilate not wanting to risk some kind of political upheaval basically gives in to the crowd. He hands Jesus over to be crucified. The soldiers humiliate him. They mock him. They beat him. He carries his cross, right, with the help of Simon, who we know, out to this hill outside of town. He is strapped up between two criminals and he is killed and he dies and is dead. And Brandon last week walked us through the last part of 19 where we know that Jesus is fully dead. His disciples remove his body from the cross. They wrap it in 75 pounds of spices and linen and they put it in a tomb that had been carved out for a man named Joseph of Arimathea who was a wealthy guy who was now a follower of Christ who gave his own tomb, a clean, unused tomb that Jesus' body was to be laid in. And those that loved Jesus most took his body, they prepared it, they laid it in the tomb, and Jesus was laid there on Friday. 
And Brandon introduced us to the resurrection last week in chapter 20 in those first verses where very early in the morning while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb and she finds the stone rolled away. Afraid and not knowing what to do, knowing that Jesus was not in that tomb, she runs and returns to the disciples where Peter or Simon and John, the disciple that Jesus loved, race all the way down outside of town to the tomb. Brandon walked us through that process of how they arrived, and John arrived first and was standing hunched over the tomb, and Peter comes blasting in behind him, and then John finally joins him, and they, they realize that there is no body there. And then verse 8 and 9, they talk about how the fact that they saw that and believed, yet they did not truly know what that meant and fully understand that Jesus was to be raised from the dead. In other words, they were still full of real and honest and deep questions. Well, this morning we're going to pick up as John and Peter return home. And Mary Magdalene is left there at the tomb and all of her real and raw emotion. And we're going to explore the very first of all the resurrection appearances that Jesus makes. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to John chapter 20. We're going to be in oh, 20, 10 through uh, 18 or 19 this morning. But I wanted to get you, that's where we are. Uh, John and Peter have returned home, and Mary is left there at the tomb in full and total despair. So let's pray together. God, I thank you for the opportunity to open your word up together this morning. Lord, we thank you that your word is living and active, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword, that it penetrates even dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit, that you tell us it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. God, we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We do not take that lightly. This is not some guidebook for our life. It is your love letter poured out for us, and it is true, and it is right, and it is real. And so, Lord, speak to us through it. Reveal your heartbeat to us this morning. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you this morning. Just ask him to speak to your heart, to convict you or encourage you or whatever it is that the Lord needs to speak to you, just ask him to teach your heart this morning. Take a moment, pray for someone beside you, in front of you or behind you. We do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. And we say that everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. We want to be a church that is constantly moved by praying for those around us, whether it's someone that we know and love dearly, like our spouse, or maybe someone that we just met who we don't even quite know their name. Just pray for them. Even if that seems odd to you, pray that God would move and would teach them. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. Teach us through your word. We ask this in Jesus' resurrected name. Amen. So this is where we're picking up in John chapter 20, verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over and looked into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was a gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, 
tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned to him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet returned to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them that I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples and with the news, she said, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. So hopefully it's a familiar story, right? A few Easter's ago, we've looked at the story probably throughout your church-going life. If you've been going to church for any period of time, you're familiar with this sort of resurrected account, whether it's combined with Peter and John running into the tomb or part of the stuff that gets told on Easter. We're familiar with this idea of Mary going to the tomb and finding it empty. But I'm really fascinated by this text because it's not this sort of heart jumping jubilation kind of text that we associate normally with Easter. Where we look at Easter, we're all clapping and singing wonderful songs. What we see here wrapped up in Mary's life and even in the life of Peter and John is one of questions and doubts and despair. So Mary comes and she finds the tomb empty and she doesn't know what to do and she runs to the disciples and Peter and John run and it says that they get there and they believe, but they're not sure what they believe. They believe that Jesus' body is gone. But they don't know how to put it all together. They don't know yet that this is the resurrected Christ. They don't fully grasp these things. They believe that he is gone, but they're filled with questions. They don't know what to do, so they return home. They walk back where they have come from, and they return. And Mary Magdalene is standing there at the tomb, hunched over, looking in, left in all of her tears, in all of her pain, and in all of her despair. This is not a hand-clapping Mary that's super excited because Jesus has been raised and we're singing all the best songs. This is Mary who thinks that someone has stolen the body of the God that she has given her life to. Her despair and her hurt is on full display. She hunches over this tomb and she's crying, right? She's been there on Friday. She was part of that group of people that wrapped and prepared the body of Jesus that laid him there. And now she stands there and hunched over this tomb in total and real pain. And as she's sitting there, right, the text tells us that these angelic figures, one at the front of this place where Jesus' body would have been laid, which is most likely a carve out of the rock inside this hole in the side of a hill or a cliff, and one at the foot. And they basically look at her and say, woman, why are you crying? She's seemingly unfazed that she's talking to angels. She's like, they've uh, taken his body, right? She's just so moved by this real grief. She's saying someone stole his body. This is what Mary is believing. She hears a voice from behind her, right? That asks essentially the exact same question, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking that she's talking to the gardener. Now, this is not uncommon. We're going to actually see this happen in these resurrection appearances where Jesus doesn't reveal himself right away. Happens to the guys walking to Emmaus the same day in the afternoon. Thinking she's talking to the gardener. She says, sir, I have, if you've carried him away, tell me and I, I will go and get him. In other words, she's going, look, if you did this, like, I don't even care. I'm not even mad. Just tell me where he is, right? I will, I will just go and get him myself. 
And then Jesus says to her, Mary, and he uses her name. And she turns towards him and she cries out this term in, in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, was also a term that was used when we would greet God or when someone would greet God in prayer. It was this sort of ultimate respect term for teacher, Lord. She says, Rabboni. And she throws herself on him. And we know this because Jesus essentially has to ask her to get up and not hang on to him. Most likely, she throws herself at his feet. And that moment in Mary, she understands who this is. She throws herself at Jesus' feet. He says, do not hold on to me. I've not yet returned to the Father. Go instead and tell my brothers, tell the disciples, right, that I'm returning to the Father, their Father, that I'm returning to God, their God, right? It says, Mary went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them all the things that Jesus had said to her. So there's a lot that's really wrapped up in here for me. And I find this story, this account, uh, both disturbing and comforting all at the same time. Because there's a couple of things that I want us to really see here and understand. And, and, And the first thing I want us to understand is that Mary's pain was extremely real. Now, that that kind of goes without saying, right? We understand that she's sad, she's hurt, but I want us to see it on a different level because Mary's pain is something really different. It's extremely real. Now, we have to understand a little bit about Mary Magdalene first to get how much Jesus mattered to her. So Mary is a person that has had her life completely and totally transformed by Jesus. She's mentioned 14 times in the Gospels, all associated with the resurrection except for one in Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, he's describing people that are following Jesus and essentially talks about three women in that group. A lady named Joanna, a lady named Susanna, and Mary Magdalene. We know that Mary had carried seven demons with her. That she was deeply disturbed. And that Jesus had delivered her from all that pain, from those demons, and had set her life free. And from that moment on, she had followed him. She had given her life to following him, tending to him, and taking care of Jesus and his disciples. Her entire life was wrapped up in Jesus. She had walked the Judean countryside with Jesus and the disciples. She'd watched him do the miraculous, not only in other people, but in her. She had been delivered by Christ. She was no longer defined how the world would define her as some possessed, broken woman. But she was whole and healed by Jesus. He was her Lord. She had been part of the crowd when Jesus had been handed over. She had watched him be hung on this cross. She had taken his body down and prepared him for burial. She had laid him in the tomb. She had returned on that Sunday to go and make sure that everything was still right. She loved Jesus deeply. And so when she arrives at this tomb and Jesus' body is gone, she is distraught and devastated. I mean, imagine yourself, someone that you loved and cared about, Maybe a a, a relative, a family member, someone that you have devoted your life to supporting and loving. You watch something horrific happen to them. You've gone through this entire process of grief. You've attended the funeral. You've done all of those things. You return a few days later to go to the graveside and someone has dug up that plot. She was distraught. Not knowing what to do, she runs to get the disciples. They have no answers. All they know is that Jesus is gone and they leave and Mary is left hunching over that tomb, sobbing. Real tears to the point where she's not even moved by the fact that angels are sitting in this tomb. Her pain and her struggle and her fear are real. 
And the reason I say that is because I've said this so many times for however long I've been preaching here and doing these things that we are so afraid of using those kind of terms in our Christian life. Fear and doubt and pain. Mary has no answers. She's not standing there going, I knew this is what Jesus was going to do. He was going to be raised from the dead. I totally believe. She thinks someone has stolen his body. She has no idea what's going on. But she knows that the God that she thought she believed in is now no longer there. And her pain has kind of manifested in these deep, sobbing, weeping, hunched over the tomb while everybody is left. She is alone. We get the sense that she has no one else to turn to. And the Jesus that she put all of her hope in is not there. Not only that, he's dead and someone has taken him. And we're afraid of these things because in our Christian subculture, we are told that we are not allowed to have these kind of fears and doubts. That we're not allowed to actually have these deeply saddened moments because everything in our life needs to be completely joyful or somehow our faith isn't real. That we are told that we should exchange all of our sadness for joy. That as followers of Christ, we should be marked by joy. And those things are somewhat true. But pain and hurt is real in our earthly lives. And I think seeing Mary in all of her pain gives me permission to actually be able to ask God honest questions. The same questions she's asking to the gardener. Where have you taken him? Why did you allow this to happen? Why did my mom have to die of cancer? Why is my marriage falling apart? Where are you? Why do I feel so alone? These very real questions that we all have that we've been taught to shove down deep inside of our soul because somehow if we ask them, God either can't handle them or he gets mad if we ask him. But what we see in Mary is this freedom, right? To go before the God of the universe with our hurt and our pain and our questions and realize that it doesn't threaten him. At no point in time do we see Jesus angry or threatened by Mary, wondering where the body of Jesus is. Her pain is deeply real. And what I want you to hear this morning is that I'm not trying to give you permission to go around wallowing in sadness, but I'm giving you permission through Scripture to have real doubts and real hurts and real fears without feeling ashamed. Because Jesus does something remarkable in the middle of Mary's pain. He shows up in it, right? Jesus shows up in the middle of it. I mean, here she is weeping over this empty tomb and Jesus shows up in it, but I want you to see how he shows up in it. She shows up on that Sunday morning and she sees the stone rolled away and Jesus' body is gone and she's afraid and she begins to run. We don't see Jesus stop her in the middle of the road and go, oh, hey, don't panic. It's all gonna be okay. We don't see him stop and answer all our questions going, hey, I know you're freaked out, but listen, let me tell you the whole plan of what's about to happen. It's going to be amazing. I'm actually alive. I'm raised from the dead. I'm going to appear to Ponce. I'm going to scare everybody. It's going to be unbelievable. And we are going to change history together. You, Mary, me, all of us. Don't panic. Not once does he do that. But Jesus allows her in the middle of all this is going on to go into her questions, to go into her doubt, to live in that real raw emotion. She returns with Peter and John. They leave, and she is left there alone. 
And you know what? Jesus still, at that moment, does not prevent her pain, but he asks questions into it. Has there ever been a more sort of loaded, pregnant question in all of Scripture than the one that Jesus asks Mary? Woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Jesus knows why she's crying. He knows who she's looking for. Yet he's asking questions into the middle of her pain. He has not left her alone. He has not abandoned her. He has not tossed her to the side. He is allowing, as all of this unfolds, her doubts and her fears. And in his perfect, amazing, miraculous timing, Jesus begins to speak into her hurt. Woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And Mary, distraught, right, just says... She still doesn't know it's Jesus. He has not revealed himself to her. And she says, if you've taken him, like, just just tell me where. She still doesn't understand because Jesus still has not shown her his fullness. What this tells me is that Mary doesn't just get to discover Jesus either. Jesus is not the result of Mary's spiritual or emotional journey. She doesn't go off and try and figure out how all these things come together and land on Jesus. She lands in the opposite place. But Jesus, in the middle of all that, reveals himself, and he does it in the middle of her pain. He does it in the most personal and real way. He speaks her name. Right? The angels, they say, woman. Jesus, when he's not revealed to her, but as the gardener, he says, woman. But when he uses her name, when he says, Mary. It's almost as if her eyes are just instantly opened. Much the same way as on the guys on the road to Emmaus, right? In the book of Luke, when Jesus breaks bread with them, their eyes are opened. And at that moment, right, something remarkable happens when she says, when he says, Mary. Mary responds in this sort of incredible moment of worship. And I call it worship because really that's all it is. When she recognizes who she is in comparison to the Jesus that she stands before, she throws herself at him, most likely at his feet, clutching onto him so much that he has to say, do not hang on to me. And she cries out, Rabboni, this this word, this sort of admiration word for teacher Lord. In that moment, that Jesus reveals himself to her in the most intimate way, in the middle of her pain, in the middle of all of her questions, in the middle of all of her despair. He speaks right into it and he basically says, Mary, I am here. A lot of us mistake sometimes the silence of God for the absence of God. That we think that when God does not speak directly or give me all the answers that I need in the form and fashion in which I need them, then God therefore is absent. When we, like Mary, long for God to just show up and explain everything, give me the whole answer of how this is going to work out in the end, and I will surely follow you. We long for that kind of answer. But when God is silent in all that, we exchange that for God's absence. And I think we miss something incredibly important, which is in the middle of Mary's grief, Jesus is never absent. He's continually present, and he's asking questions. And those questions are very real. Mary, or woman, why are you crying? What is it that's breaking your heart? 
He's not trying to trick her. I think he's asking real questions. What is it that you're really weeping over? Right? Are, are you weeping over my, the loss of me or the fact that my body's not here or the circumstance as a whole? And then at his perfect, incredible personal timing, he just says, Mary. And in that word, Mary, is really wrapped up like, I'm here. I never left. I'm here. In the deepest and most difficult moments in my life, I have oftentimes exchanged my fear, my doubt, sometimes God's silence for his absence. But it's precisely in those moments as I look back that I see that God has never forsaken me. He was never fully gone. His promise is never, ever to prevent our pain, but always to prevail in it. Mary gives us permission, I think, to ask real questions to God. And God is not threatened by your questions. The call of a believer, though, in the middle of those questions is to press our hearts to believe that God is who he says he is. So Lord, even though I feel like right now I'm alone, even though I feel like I've got these doubts, even though I feel like there's no one here that understands or that I'm walking through all this alone, even though I feel that, God, I want to press through my feelings and trust and believe that you are who you say you are, that you've never left me nor forsake me. And then maybe you're asking questions in the middle of my pain because you are going to show me yourself in an incredible, new, and alive way. So she throws herself at his feet in this act of pure worship. And I love this picture in scripture because it's not scripted. This is not an ordered worship service where there's two songs, some announcements, three songs, and then this guy, right? It's not scripted worship. It's Mary in an instant moment that realizes that she is standing in the presence of Jesus. And she can no longer stand because she recognizes who it is that she's talking to. And so she throws herself at his feet in this unscripted, raw moment of true emotion that says, you essentially are alive. You are my God. And in that instant, all of those questions don't vanish, right? They don't vanish. They still don't fully understand exactly what Jesus is going to do. He's yet to even return to the Father, which is probably really confusing to her. But in the moment of her pain, when Jesus reveals himself, she realizes that he, in fact, is all that he said he was. But then something remarkable happens, right? So then at the very end of this, in the middle of all of Mary's pain and all of those questions and all of those things, and even in her response to worship, Jesus actually responds to her. He tells her not to cling on to him before. He's not even returned to the Father yet, but to go and tell the brothers that I'm going to the Father, their Father, that I'm going to God, their God. She basically tells Mary to go and tell. He does. And I find this really interesting, right? Because why does he tell Mary to go and tell the, the brothers? <clears throat> he doesn't need her to. Next week, we're actually going to see Jesus walk through a locked door and surprise them all. So it's not like he needs Mary to go and tell them. But this essentially becomes the call for all believers, which is that if we've encountered the resurrected Christ, he's delivered us and saved us, and he is who he says he is, that our entire call as followers of Christ is to go and tell the world, 
See, evangelism or the going and telling is not for Mary. Jesus is going to show up anyway. The evangelism is so that Mary would know Jesus more. That she would be able to tell what she has seen and heard. Not so that they would believe her, but so she could participate in the call of God. See, we've exchanged in our Western culture the call of go and tell for the call of come and sit. Which is we're going to invite all of our neighbors to come and sit in here. And you're going to let me or whoever seems to be up here do the telling. Because my course of evangelism for my life as a follower of Christ is that if I can just invite you to have somebody else tell you. Jesus' instruction to Mary was to just go and tell. And what does she do? She bursts into that room and she says, I have seen the Lord. I've seen the Lord. And she told him everything that he said. As I started thinking about this, I really started thinking about even my own life and, and, and what I truly believe about God and, and how that comes out across in my life. My own call to evangelism or just to tell the world, right? And, and sadly, I think so many of us have grown up in this culture that says <clears throat> religion is sort of a private matter, right? It's between you and God. The problem with that, of course, is it's just not biblical at all. The reality is, is that the entire call of a Christ follower is to tell the entire world that you have seen the Lord. Look, I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the theological responses. I don't have all the whys in the world. I don't know why horrible things have happened and why this has happened to you and not to them and why this awful person keeps winning the lottery and you can't even make a paycheck. I don't have any answers for those things. I don't know why your kid is hard or why your wife or husband is this. I don't know why your dad had to walk through what he walked through. I don't know why genocide exists. I don't have answers for any of those. And neither do you. But here's what I can tell you about my own life. I have seen the Lord. In my desperation and sin and brokenness decades ago, God did for me what I could not do for myself. I cannot tell you why. I certainly did not deserve it. But I have seen him change my heart and my life when I could do nothing for myself. That is all I stand up here and say every single week. That Jesus is real. I have seen him in my own life. And he has come for you. Mary's story is not much different. She was a broken woman, battled with evil, When Jesus stepped into her life and did for her what she could not do for herself, she surrendered her heart and followed this guy around the Judean countryside. She walked through doubts and questions and fears and answers that she didn't have to life's most difficult questions, which is, where have you gone? In the middle of those doubts and questions, Jesus didn't ridicule her or reject her, but he shows up in the middle of all those, and he says, Mary, I am here. He doesn't give her more answers. He doesn't tell her all the whys. He just says, I am here. Go and tell the world that you have seen me. And Mary gets up off her feet, right? And she goes and tells the world that she has seen the Lord. You do not have to be the world's greatest apologist or evangelist to tell your neighbor that you've seen Jesus. This church does not have to have all the perfect answers for all the deep theological questions of why to tell people that we have seen the Lord. The resurrection's single greatest call is that I don't know how, it's miraculous, but I have seen him. 
as we go out of this place and as you understand these truths as they kind of reflect in your own life, quit using the roadblock of I, I don't know or I don't have the answers or I have all these questions. Who am I to say or to speak or to do anything? I'll tell you who you are. You're Mary. You're broken. Jesus has stepped in and interrupted your life. He has not given you all the answers, nor will he ever. But you have seen him because you've examined your heart. You've watched what he's done, and you are no longer who the world said you were. And then he says, go and tell. This is our greatest call. I could care less, couldn't care less if you ever brought one single person into this room. But go and tell the world that you have seen the Lord. Your doubts and fears are real. Answers are not promised. God's silence is not his absence. And his perfect timing, whether that's today or in two months from now, I promise you God will speak into the middle of your pain. He promises never to leave nor forsake. He is there. As hard as it may be, I encourage you to trust him right now and just say, God, I believe that you are who you say you are and that you have me. And then tell the world what you see. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your truth, your word, <clears throat> that it is real and alive. I thank you, Lord, that I've had and still have more questions than I'll ever have answers for. I confess, Lord, that I have doubts that uh, are super real, that I have shortcomings and failures that are all too vivid. I have asked more questions than I've ever answered. But in the middle of all that, Lord, I, I pray that what I've seen and what each of us in here has seen on some level is that we've seen your faithfulness. That you've showed up in the middle of our lives at some of the most difficult times and, and, and not given all the answers, not told us all the whys, not made everything better. But you've walked with us and you've given us peace where there should be restlessness. You've given us a semblance of joy where there should be sorrow. That as we've weeped or wept, you've comforted. And then, Lord, at the most intimate and perfect time, just like Mary, you've spoken into our lives, essentially saying, I am here. Lord, I don't have a lot to tell the world. I'm certainly not very smart. I certainly don't have all the answers. But, Lord, the truth is I've seen you. I know who I was. I know who I still am. I know that you've set me free. And I pray that my heart and the heart of this church would just be to tell the world, just to tell the world, I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. God, as we close our time in worship, I pray that you would allow those truths to resonate in our hearts, that they would be powerful and true and they would be the top of our hearts and our lungs as we worship the God who is not dead, who is in fact alive, and who is in fact speaking into all of our pain in the most intimate way, who will never leave nor forsake, who rescues and who redeems. 
and who sends us into the world to go and tell. Let's stand together and close our time in worship this morning. Thank you.